and we'll, we'll talk about why, what are we doing here, uh, but let me open in prayer first, and then we're going to look together at Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, but let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you uh, for your word, we thank you for calling us as Uh, Your people, we thank you for the grace of the gospel and the promises of your covenant. As we have been studying your uh, covenant of grace this uh, semester, we pray that our hearts would be enlarged, uh, that you would do a work in us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for uh, Palmer Robertson. Thank you for many of the others who contribute to our learning and our understanding. But Lord, we pray that uh, we would receive wisdom from your word, and uh, enlightenment from your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would guide us into all truth, that you would lead us to yourself, be the shepherd of our souls today, and help us to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, before our discussion today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Now, I've chosen this passage today for several reasons. One, because it illustrates exactly what we're going to be talking about uh, as we cover uh, basics of dispensationalism and the comparison between dispensationalism and covenant theology. That seems like a pretty heady thing. Uh, But this also encompasses uh, a lot of what we've been talking about with this, this unity of God's purposes throughout creation, and in fact, because this passage and the whole of Ephesians so clearly illustrates this unity of God's purposes and God's people. As soon as we're done with the Christ of the Covenants, we are going to be going through a very quick study of the book of Ephesians for the rest of this semester until we get to the summertime. Uh, We're going to go, we should have about six sessions after we're done with the book, and there are six chapters in Ephesians, and we're going to just sort of jump through pretty quickly. But one of the, the, the foundational ideas in Ephesians is that God makes his people one in Christ Jesus, that he makes Gentiles and Jews together heirs of his promises. And this is a lot of what we're talking about when we uh, begin to talk about dispensationalism. Now, uh, you'll notice uh, this is the, the chapter title that uh, Robertson gives us. He, he's going on an excursus. He's taking a rabbit trail Uh, He's gotten through most of the book, and now he finally says, now hold on, let's step back, Uh, let's decide what system uh, of interpretation we ought to be dealing with. Now, uh, there's a challenge, I think, in this chapter, And, and the challenge is that the arguments are pretty straightforward, but the material is confusing. Uh, It's particularly confusing for the uninitiated. Uh, So if you go through, this is one of the reasons, uh, busyness is the other reason, but one of the reasons that I did not give you an outline for this chapter is that it's merely a point-by-point comparative analysis. 
right? If you've read it already, you know that Robertson goes through each of the covenants that we've identified, the, uh, the covenant that he calls the covenant of creation, or we know as the covenant of works, and then uh, the different uh, administrations of the covenant of grace. And he simply says, well, here's uh, what dispensationalism has to say about that, and here's what covenant theology has to say about that. And he lays them alongside one another, then draws a, a couple conclusions, and the argument itself is pretty straightforward. However, it assumes a basic knowledge of dispensationalism. Uh, I received a question uh, early on in our study of Robertson, uh, and uh, the question was uh, from someone who was uh, reading astutely, it seems like Robertson is not just presenting a case, but he's presenting a polemic. It doesn't seem like he's telling you what you should believe. It seems like he's arguing against something else. And I said, actually, you're right. <laughs> uh, Robertson is arguing against something else, and that something else that Robertson is arguing against is uh, essentially dispensationalism. Uh, they are uh, two different systems of interpretation. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons that we're talking about it now is that dispensationalism is essentially the major alternative system to covenant theology. There are other ways of reading and interpreting and structuring scripture, uh, but among American evangelicalism especially, these are the two heavyweights. Dispensationalism probably is the majority view. You know dispensationals. If you know uh, American evangelicals outside of a Presbyterian and Reformed and probably Lutheran and a few other small uh, minority positions, you know dispensationalists. Um, uh, but there's a, a, a challenge here, the fact that covenant theologians and dispensationalists use some of the same language in different ways. So I, I'm not giving you an outline of the chapter, uh, but rather I, I want to look uh, at a few things today, I've pointed out uh, major alternatives, probably the prevailing view, and it, and it has uh, some uh, takeaways. It, the, the question of dispensationalism versus covenant theology is not just a question of, well, uh, what do we think about Abraham? Uh, what do we think about Moses? How do we read this? How do we divide the word of God rightly? Uh, it really has effects on everything that we understand. It, it affects the way that we read Scripture, and the way that we read Scripture affects how we apply Scripture in our lives. What we think about God is doing in the world, what we think about obedience to the Lord, how we think of the church, what we believe about the end times, and on and on and on and on it could go. Uh, these are two divergent paths, although we should recognize at the beginning, as Robertson points out, that we are not, as covenant uh, theology people or covenant theologians, uh, we would not point at dispensationalists and say that it's heresy, right? That's a big, heavy word that we're not using in this class to describe dispensationalists. Dispensationalists are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I've been uh, convinced, as I read this week, that I need to make a, a slight retraction. I have said, as Robertson points out, contrary, uh, I've said that, uh, that dispensationalists believe in two different systems of salvation. Uh, that is not true, uh, although I do not believe that that has always been clearly articulated, and we'll see some of the development in dispensational theology. Uh, but what we're talking about are, are two separate ways for believers, evangelical believers, Christians, uh, who hold the scripture in high regard, who believe in salvation by faith through Christ, two divergent ways that we read and understand and apply scripture. So my goal today uh, is threefold. First, to give just an overview of dispensationalism. I think once we understand some of the things that are going on behind the scenes in Robertson, it's much easier to read the chapter. So now you get to read this chapter twice. Uh, you, you get to go back if you'd like, uh, and uh, we're not gonna come back to it, we're not gonna discuss it, you can study it on your own. Uh, but I hope that having a background knowledge of what he's talking about will help us to understand some of the things that, he, that, are, uh, that he's dealing with. Uh, and then I do want to look, uh, after we've given sort of an overview of dispensationalism, I do want to look at one of Robertson's arguments 
And that is the, the, uh, the section dealing with Abraham, because there I think he brings out most clearly some of the distinctions between these two systems of thought. And then uh, if we have time, we won't, uh, we'll deal with a, a little bit of discussion at the end. So that's uh, where we're going. Uh, a heads up and uh, a note on some resources for you. This is one of the classes where I felt like I had to learn an awful lot in order to lead this class. Um, and so uh, nothing that I'm presenting is my own idea. I'm not going to quote as I go along, but almost all of this comes from other sources. And there are some sources if you want some more information that you can go and find uh, later. One of them is this book, uh, Dispensationalism, Rightly Dividing the People of God. Question mark. I should have put a question mark at the end of that. That's a question uh, by Keith Matheson. Um, when I first approached this book, I thought, man, that is a really inflammatory title for a book. Uh, like he's pointing over at dispensationalists and saying, oh, they're, they're ruining the church. It's unnecessarily schismatic. That's not the point. There's a sort of double meaning in what he's saying. And as we get into the discussion of what dispensationalism is and does, you'll understand why his, uh, his big beef is on a division in the people of God. So this actually is a really, really good tool. If you want to know just the basics of dispensationalism, dispensationalism is an enormous theological system. It's huge. Uh, we will not be able to cover even the, the very foundation, uh, certainly not all of the nuances and the different ways that, that it's applied and interpreted. And there are uh, classic dispensationalists, and there are revised dispensationalists, and there are progressive dispensationalists, and there are mid-acts dispensationalists, and there are so many different versions, kind of like there are so many different versions of reformed folks, right? You, you've got your Dutch reform, which are slightly different than other reform. You get, anyway, uh, this is the idea. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but this is a, a wonderful introduction resource. Uh, the other uh, source that I was using is a, a chapter in a big, thick, heavy book. I didn't bring it uh, because I didn't want to intimidate you by the size of the books that I read. Uh, but it's this huge book that I bought, a uh, great uh, topic or discussion of lots of covenant theology issues. And there's a chapter in that book on dispensationalism. The other thing is a seminar, a, uh, a lecture by Derek Thomas. Uh, for those of you who had your phones out, that link should take you right to sermon audio if you want to listen to that later. Um, uh, it's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Uh, really good, again, an introduction. And Derek Thomas is far more uh, erudite uh, and eloquent than I could ever hope to be. So I, I commend that one to you. So uh, getting on with our discussion. If anybody needs that link, still need that link? Did you get it? Kathy? Yes. No. Nope. There are others. Um, they, they tend to be nuances of those two, right? Among evangelicals, they tend to be nuances of those two. There's another approach called New Covenant Theology, uh, which is essentially covenant theology, but it believes in a distinction between uh, the Old Covenant law and application for the New Testament believer, it's almost a hybrid. Uh, they like the covenant, th and, and in fact, progressive dispensationalism is almost a hybrid, and it, there are others. These are the two majors, yep. Uh, so when you talk about theological systems of salvation, it's like saying Calvinism and Arminianism, are there alternatives? Yes, but they tend to be somewhere in between those two uh, those two ends of the spectrum. Yes, ma'am. This depends on how we define reformed, uh, depends on how we define dispensationalist. Uh, we will see, hopefully, uh, that especially at the very beginning, uh, dispensationalism was tied to a lot of Calvinistic folks. That's not the case mostly anymore. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with, um, and maybe it's just my, my loose usage of the terms, uh, what do we mean by reform? Do we just mean our view of salvation? 
that is Calvinism, sort of uh, God's uh, predestination and election and his sovereignty and working that out, or, or is it a larger system uh, that we tie with uh, our, our system of hermeneutic, right? So uh, I believe the Westminster Confession, when we, when we went back and we looked at chapter one on how we read scripture, that's a reformed interpretation of scripture. Uh, and typically, uh, we would marry a reformed hermeneutic, the way that we read scripture, with covenant theology. Um, and so maybe I'm mixing my terms, and if so, that's, that's my fault and not somebody else's. They would not be dispensationalists, correct. Because any PCA church is going to, uh, is going to uh, subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a covenant theology document. Uh, we've read that chapter, chapter 7 on the covenants of God, uh, a bicovenantal structure, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and we'll see actually some of the language from that. Uh, but there are folks who have a, um, uh, a Calvinistic soteriology who are also dispensationalists. Case in point, John MacArthur, right? So he would be somebody who is very staunchly Calvinistic and yet pretty staunchly dispensationalist, and we'll see some of the way that that, that works out. <laughs> we haven't even gotten into it. Great. I see Nick and then Cynthia. Yeah. Dispensationalism didn't exist until the 1830s. Uh, so Calvin was not. Uh, and, and covenant theology, as we know it now and as we define it, didn't exist until about a century after Calvin. Um, he clearly follows the, the structure of the covenantal breakdown of scripture. Uh, and the biggest distinction is that uh, what we will see is that Calvin would unite the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. And this is the major distinction that we're going to see. So I would, I would say Calvin, definitely not a dispensationalist as we would define it today. Cynthia. That is one of the indications. Um, there, there are many. Uh, again, this, <laughs> this is such a huge topic. Uh, man, I'm not even going to cover much of this at all, I bet. Um, it's such a huge topic, but that is one of the, the major ones, right? We, we talked about this covenant sign of Abraham, and why do we baptize infants? Because we believe in this continuity, that God essentially has one people, and what we, what we see in the New Testament is the Old Testament people of God uh, reconstituted. Uh, we just read Ephesians. He's united them both into one body in Christ. And so baptism becomes the equivalent New Testament sign for that Old Testament sign of circumcision. That is one good way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, but there are others. Uh, and I think the, the major one, and we'll see it as we go along, uh, is the issue of who is the church and how does it relate to Israel. Okay. So, dispensationalism basics, uh, since we're already well on our way. What is dispensationalism, and is it enough to define dispensationalism according to its dispensations? That would seem to be the easiest way to do it. Uh, and by the way, what is a dispensation anyway? Well, uh, glad you asked. Westminster Confession of Faith, 7.6. This is, again, uh, coming from a covenant theology standpoint. Uh, the end of that section says, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. All right, so it's talking about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, and saying, no, 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 it's not separate. Uh, one covenant for the Jews, one covenant for the Gentiles, uh, but rather it is the same covenant of grace, but it shows up under various dispensations, broadly speaking. Uh, and this is not unique to dispensationalism. Uh, the Westminster Confession uses the language of dispensation. A dispensation, broadly speaking, is a period of time uh, with unique features of interaction between God and man. This goes back all the way to the early church fathers. 
And very often, dispensationalists will point to people in the first centuries and say, well, they recognized that God had uh, different ways of interacting with people at different times, so therefore dispensationalism is the ancient doctrine of the church, to which we would say, incorrect. Uh, <laughs> most of those who, uh, who would point to that uh, still maintain the unity of, of true Israel by the faith, uh, or by faith, and tr the true church by faith, right? Uh, they would say, well, God uh, does deal a little differently, uh, but when he changes the way that he interacts with humanity, it's not a replacement, but rather uh, a succession and a building. We've been talking about progressive revelation, right? God doesn't give us everything all at once, but he builds and he shows more and more, but all of those revelations are all pointing in the same direction, right? Here's one of the main distinctions. Dispensationalism is not unique in having dispensations, that is, periods of time that are different, but dispensationalism is, dispensationalism is unique in seeing those dispensations as testing periods that are sequentially replaced. This is C.I. Schofield from the, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible. He says, uh, dispensations are, quote, periods of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. He goes on, each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test of the natural man, man and each ends in judgment, marking his failure. So God gives the test to man. When man fails that, he gives a new test, and in fact, a different test. All right? So this is, uh, this is part of the reference uh, in this, uh, this book. Uh, the dispensational creed is rightly dividing the word of God, right? Cutting it into its individual slices. What is God doing here? How is he interacting with humanity in this period? How is that different from the way that he interacts with humanity in another period? And it's not progressive, as we have seen it, that there's a unity and diversity, but rather it is sequential, and each dispensation takes the place of the one before it, and the dispensation passes away. That has implications. The implications are that it divides God's mode of interacting with humanity. It divides expectations. Obedience to man in one dispensation looks different, uh, differently, uh, from obedience to God in another dispensation. What does God require of man under the dispensation of the law? Well, obedience to the law. What does he require in, uh, of man under the dispensation of the Abrahamic promise? Well, faith, and we'll see, remaining in the land. And those are different, uh, different standards. And so it divides the expectations of, of believers. There's a divided purpose that God has different programs for people who are in different dispensations. And because one is replaced by another, these purposes remain separate. Uh, essentially, uh, the dispensationalists would say that God has a different purpose for ethnic Israel than he has for the New Testament church, even uh, true Israel. So, so we get uh, hung up sometimes by, by inserting uh, true Israel or ethnic Israel or, or national Israel uh, but there is a distinct division between those two. And then a divided people. Saints under different dispensations may have a different place in God's plan of redemption. And in fact, they may receive different things at the end of days in the age of the kingdom. Because God has a different purpose for them. Yes, Cindy. How can you trust God? You mean if he changes the, the way that he interacts? Yeah. Um, well, again... Um, I think that's a good question, but again, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and they're not saying uh, God is fickle, right? Um, they're not saying that all of these things are unexpected, but rather um, they are legitimate changes, and, and what you need to do is trust God within the dispensation where you find yourself, right? So, so they would say, we can trust God as New Testament believers by living in the requirements of the dispensation of the church age not by trying to live by the requirements of the dispensation of the law, right? God requires something different of New Testament spiritual believers than he required of Old Testament uh, ethnic Israel. So they would say you can trust him, you can trust what he's saying, but you need to make sure the way that you're, you're not, um, I, I think this is the right answer. Um, yeah, okay, all right. 
that's fine. Now, uh, when we start to talk about the division in a people, uh, here's where we need to have some history. Uh, dispensationalism history. Dispensationalism really gets started with this uh, strapping man here, John Nelson Darby. That's pronounced Darby. Uh, he was an Irishman. Uh, he was an Anglican minister uh, in, uh, near to Dublin, and, uh, and he was a Calvinist. Soteriologically, he believed in God's sovereignty. He believed in the total depravity of man. Uh, and he was ordained as an Anglican minister. Uh, but he was concerned about the union of the church and the nation with the Anglican church. And so he renounced his uh, ordination credentials. And he was part of the founding of the Plymouth Brethren Movement. Who knows what the Plymouth Brethren Movement is? Okay? Uh, so one of the, the features, main features of Plymouth Brethren is no clergy. Uh, there, there are no pastors. They believe that in Ephesians where it says that God gave pastors to the church, that is like God giving uh, the gift of prophecy to the church. It's given to all the church, not just given through particular officers. And so uh, many Plymouth Brethren churches, and again, this branches out, uh, will have elders who lead congregations. They'll have men in the congregation who open God's word, but uh, it's sort of a, a communal gathering church rather than a pastor standing up front and leading. Uh, and so he, he was concerned about some of these things, the joining of God's spiritual entity with nat uh, national entities. Uh, and he was also concerned with inroads of critical scholarship. Uh, people are starting to, to cut up uh, the Pentateuch and to say that it was written by, you know, any number of people over any number of years. And he wanted to come back to uh, a, a clear understanding of what we would call an evangelical reading of scripture. Uh, he was also concerned with social upheaval. The industrial age is taking root. Uh, things are upside down. It seems there is this pressure at this time among many theologians. The end of days is upon us. It's coming at any moment. Uh, and he was the first popularizer of uh, the idea of a premillennial, pre-tribulation, rapture of the church. Now we're getting pretty far into the weeds, aren't we? Uh, if you don't know exactly what that is, uh, the church has always maintained uh, that God will, uh, Christ will return on a day that he has fixed and gather his church to himself. Uh, through Darby and others like him, uh, they began to teach that Christ would do that secretly and remove all believers from the world and leave others for this period of, of testing and uh, and uh, struggle and strife called the tribulation, and that comes before Christ returns to inaugurate his millennial reign on earth. We don't believe that. We don't teach that, uh, but that's what uh, typically a dispensationalist will believe, a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Again, very broad understanding. This won't touch on everybody, but, but uh, generally. So after Darby, uh, jump ahead uh, quite a ways. It, it came to the United States, uh, and uh, C.I. Schofield. Bonus points for anybody who knows what the letters C.I. stand for. Cyrus Ingerson. His first name is Cyrus. Uh, okay, uh, so Cyrus, uh, Cyrus Ingerson. Uh, he was uh, a pastor. He was a minister. He spent some time as a Congregationalist. He became a Presbyterian. By the way, he was an ordained minister in the PCUS, which was the Southern Presbyterian Church, out of which the PCA split in 1973. A little, uh, little history for you. So you see that in the beginning, uh, it found a home with Calvinists and, uh, and with those who are, uh, are concerned about God's sovereignty. In fact, uh, in my reading, I found that Grove City College was uh, part of hosting the initial um, sort of gatherings where some of these doctrines were really solidified and discussed. Uh, so uh, his major contribution is, is systematizing scripture into a sevenfold dispensation and an eightfold covenant. He essentially takes all the covenants that we have identified, and he adds one in Deuteronomy that he calls the covenant of Palestine. Uh, so again, uh, this, this focus uh, we're seeing on, uh, on physical Israel, national Israel, on the land. Uh, and he says this, he says, the dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. The former is a mode of testing, 
the latter is everlasting because unconditional. What does that mean? That means that if you have a covenant of Palestine, that covenant needs to be realized. Uh, we, would, uh, we would say that God has made promises concerning inheriting the land and that those things are fulfilled in what Christ says, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, the dispensationalists would say, no, 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 there are promises uh, regarding the land that must be fulfilled regarding the land, the land of Palestine. So he says it's everlasting, uh, but the dispensation comes and goes, it's replaced. Now, his other contribution was the Schofield Reference Bible. This was published in 1909. It had enormous, enormous impact, right? You see, uh, you see Presbyterians carrying their ESV study Bibles everywhere they go. That is like the, uh, you know, the default study Bible or the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. This is one of the first big study Bibles with all the notes in the margins, all the things you need to know about the scriptures. And through this study Bible, he put out his ideas and the dispensational ideas about uh, dividing all of these uh, things. This went a re underwent a revision as the new Schofield Reference Bible in 1967. And that revision softened some of the language of the original, which is why when you read Christ of the Covenants, the chapter that we just read, he begins to quote the old and the new. Right? Are these ideas taken from the old Schofield Bible or are they taken from the new Schofield Bible? There was a third revision of the Schofield in 2003, which is not quoted uh, because Palmer uh, Robertson didn't deal with it uh, because he wrote this in the 60s. Uh, now, when you deal with dispensationalism, it is often divided between classic and revised or old and new along these divisions. About the same time that this was revised came uh, the third major figure in our dispensationalism history, and that is Charles Ryrie. Uh, a contemporary, just uh, died in 2016. Uh, very well-known American theologian, Baptist pastor, a professor. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary being uh, the major dispensational seminary in America. Uh, and he was also a professor and the dean of what is now Cairn University uh, in Philadelphia, a dispensational college, uh, began under C.I. Schofield as the Philadelphia College of the Bible, uh, but is now Cairn. Uh, so he wrote a, a, another very important popular book called Dispensationalism Today, came out in 1965, and he held to no fixed number of dispensationalists, or, or dispensations, sorry. Um, uh, Schofield said it had to be seven. Uh, it's good. It's a, it's a good biblical number. Uh, Ryrie said, well, it doesn't matter if you have five, you have seven, you have eight, you have ten. Uh, but what you need to do is to understand uh, that Scripture is divided, that God's mode of dealing with people is divided. Now, this uh, leads to his comments in dispensationalism today. He says, the sine qua non ought to lie in recognition of the fact that God has distinguishably different economies in governing the affairs of the world. What's that mean? It means the essence of dispensationalism then is the distinction between Israel and the church. Now remember these different programs that God has, these different people. Why is this called rightly dividing the people of God? Not because Matheson is trying to be uh, divisive, but because he's saying here's the major issue among dispensationalists, that they want to separate out Israel from the church. You folks remember that every once in a while we have Stephen Atkin, Atkinson visit us, and he tells us about some of the conversations he has with people as he goes around the country and he, and he talks about ministry to Israel, and you have seen it. You've seen this excitement about getting Israelites back into Palestine, of reestablishing a temple, of reestablishing a theocracy in Israel, in Jerusalem, because that is what the dispensationalists would believe is God's plan for the redemption of the Israelite people, all these, uh, these promises. That's the end of our history. That brings us back to the hallmark doctrine of dispensationalism. That is the separation of Israel and the church. So one, they would believe, is an earthly body. The other is a heavenly body. One will find fulfillment in a renewed earthly kingdom. The other will inherit heavenly promises. They also believe and teach that the age of the church is an interruption or what they call an intercalation, intercalation, 
I had to look that one up. Uh, an intercalation is leap year, right? For the calendar to, to line up correctly every four years, we have to add a day to February. That's an intercalation. So they would say that the age of the church is an interruption or intercalation of God's plan for national Israel. Robertson deals with this on page 220 if you want to look it up. They also believe that after the rapture of believing Gentiles, God will return to his original purpose for the Israelite. That is, literally fulfilling his Old Testament promises and prophecies concerning the promised land. Now, that's the hallmark doctrine. There are other uh, distinctives of dispensationalism. Again, this may apply or may not apply to any dispensationalist you know personally, because it's very broad. Um, but a lot of this comes from their declared insistence on a literal, or what they call a plain reading of Scripture. This isn't taken woodenly. Christ says that he's the door. They wouldn't say, well, obviously we have to believe. No, no, no. Uh, they allow for, for idiom, for, for figures of speech. But when you see prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, dealing with land, with kingdom, with blessing, with riches, with prosperity, with, uh, with agricultural abundance, they would say those must be interpreted literally and plainly. We cannot spiritualize them. You'll see as you read through Robertson that he points out that there are some difficulties in doing this uh, because it becomes pretty subjective. Uh, one of the uh, original concerns uh, of Mr. Darby was the critical scholarship that took the Old Testament and cut it into chunks. Well, what the dispensationalist does sometimes is they'll say, well, this, uh, this clearly has been fulfilled in the church, but these other things couldn't be fulfilled in the church. And so this must be interpreted literally, and this we have warrant to interpret spiritually. And it becomes pretty subjective. Uh, but there is this declared insistence on a plain reading. Uh, along with that, an application of all Old Testament promises and prophecies uh, to national or ethnic Israel. Lewis Sperry Schaefer says, the first prediction relative to the true church was uttered by Christ, being recorded in Matthew 16, 18. You understand the significance of what he's saying there. He's saying that the Old Testament prophets did not foretell the church age. Christ was the first one to say that there would be a church separate from Israel. Right? They're saying that it wasn't until Matthew 16, 18 uh, that, that anyone uh, had the idea that there was going to be any program of God separate from national ethnic Israel. This is pretty important. Other dispensationalist perspectives, again, pretty broadly, expectation of a literal earthly thousand-year reign of the kingdom of God through a restored Israel in Palestine. Now, this is, uh, again, with, uh, with Stephen Atkinson, Christian witness to Israel, this is why so many are intent on we have to get Jews back to Palestine. Because if you get them back to Palestine, you can help to usher in the age of the millennium. Uh, also, the idea that restored Israel will be a theocracy. Many go so far as to uh, claim that it will be complete with an earthly temple and restored sacrifices. Read Ezekiel, chapter 40 to 48. A dispensationalist believes that that picture of uh, the spirit and, and that stream that becomes a mighty flow of water coming out from the temple, this, uh, this renewed uh, temple, is a picture of the millennial age. And sprinkled all throughout that is description of sacrifices that the dispensationalists would say, well, they must be literally fulfilled. But those sacrifices, Ezekiel is clear to say, are atoning sacrifices, which the New Testament says will not happen again. This, again, is pretty important. Uh, and then there is the distinctly heavenly nature of the church. If the earth belongs to ethnic Israel, then heaven belongs to the church and so let's not worry too much about what happens here. So here is uh, C.I. Schofield. It's a long quote. Uh, it is not so much wealth, luxury, power, pomp, and pride that have served to deflect the church from her appointed course, as the notion founded upon Israelitish Old Testament promises that the church is of the world and that therefore her mission is to improve the world. Promises that were given to Israel alone are quoted as justifying what we see all around us today. 
The church, therefore, has failed to follow her appointed pathway of separation, holiness, heavenliness, and testimony to an absent but coming Christ. She has turned aside from that purpose to the work of civilizing the world, building magnificent temples and acquiring earthly power and wealth, and in this way has ceased to follow the footsteps of him who had not where to lay his head. And there's a lot of that that we would say, that's a pretty good critique, actually. Why is the church not separate? Why are we not willing to bear the reproach of Christ and come out from the midst of them? We might say, actually, let's not get so entangled in uh, digging wells in Africa so much as we are in spreading the word of Christ. It's all going to burn, man. Yeah. So let the world do the world, right? God will come back later and he'll establish his kingdom uh, in Palestine. But for us, let's focus on heaven. Let's just look for that heavenly reality. Now, again, this is something that in some ways and in some emphases we want to align ourselves with, but the direction that it goes is not where Robertson has been pushing us, and I think with him, not where Scripture pushes us. So, let's take a minute and reflect. Uh, looking back on our study of Robertson, where are the places that he seems to be pushing back most against the dispensationalist view of Scripture. Think about some of the other passages, the chapters that we've studied, the different uh, covenants that God has given. With what you know now, and again, this is a very quick overview of dispensationalism, uh, do you see what he's been arguing against the whole way through? Ronnie. And, and again, we, we dealt with, uh, he acknowledges, and we acknowledge, the Westminster talks about dispensations. He acknowledges that there is a diversity of the covenants, but he wants to push us to this essential unity, right? That what God was doing in creation, what he was doing through Noah, what he was doing with Abraham, with Israel, it's all stages along the same pathway. It's not as though God is doing one thing and then, whoop, let's do something else for a little bit and let's come back uh, and, and gather in. And again, uh, that's probably a, a crass way of putting it. Again, the, the dispensationalists would believe that God is in charge of history. Uh, it's not a mystery to him, the church age, but it is a mystery to us. Right? Good. Uh, so, so trying to unify scripture. Excuse me while I have this throat lozenge. I saw Dave's hand. And, uh, and from what I've read, my understanding is uh, that there are various places where uh, the dispensationalists would believe that there is essentially what we might call a regression. So in Robertson, he quotes, I believe it's C.I. Schofield, that says that the promise to Abraham, we'll see it if we get to it in this, uh, this section, the promise to Abraham and the dispensation of promise to Abraham ends with the giving of the law. And it ends because Israel foolishly accepted the law. As though God holds it out and says, well, you can go the way of Abraham or you can go the way of the law. And Israel goes, well, the law sounds pretty good. Let's take that. And at least uh, that language was removed in the, revi the revised Schofield, in the new one. Uh, but it was there in the original. Uh, and, and there are still many people, right? You can still meet uh, pre-Vatican II Catholics. We say, no, 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 we, we don't deal with anything past the 60s. We're, we're old school. Now, there are still dispensationalists. You can go on Amazon. There's a huge market for the old Schofield Bible because that is uh, what many people cling to. And so this idea that there's a regression through Moses and the giving of the law, this idea that there's a regression uh, through the age of the church. They would say that that only happened once Jesus made an actual offer to become the king of the Jews and they rejected it. That's the beginning of 
the church age, or that's the reason that God uh, begins the church age in, in Acts. Jay. Again, uh, and here's, here's where um, most of the scholars are, are pretty quick to point out, uh, when we talk about spiritual salvation, they would say everybody, Old Testament, New Testament, is saved by believing in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But they would believe that, uh, I think this is true, they would, they would say that God has different plans, uh, different purposes, and ultimately different rewards for the Jew and the Gentile. The Gentile, the believer in Christ, receives a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. The Jew receives an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one. I, don't, I can't answer that. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Yes. That might be a good way to put it. Um, yeah, the, the, the pre-trib, pre-mill position uh, really came about through dispensationalist teaching. Uh, and it has clung to that because of this, uh, this insistence on a literal kingdom, right? Uh, that Christ will return before, pre-mill, before the millennium. There are historic uh, premillennialists who are not dispensational premillennialists. And so there is a, a division. So you, you've probably got the Venn diagram correct. Yeah, yeah. What practical difference does this conversation uh, between covenant theology and dispensationalism have for the typical believer? Here we are scratching our heads, getting these big brains in Sunday school. Uh, where's the rubber meet the road? What does it matter? Kathy and then Dave. Maybe. Uh, so I, I don't have answers in mind for this question. Uh, so we're fishing out what are some of the implications. Well, there's, uh, there's Luther's famous quote, right? Uh, maybe another one of these apocryphal, but I think, I think this one has been attributed to him pretty, uh, pretty solidly. Somebody asked Luther, what would you do if you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow? He said, I would plant a tree today. Right? The idea... Uh, that, uh, that the world doesn't end and then it's curtains and only a spiritual reality. But as we'll see through Robertson, if we, if we get to it, this idea that, uh, that God has created man uh, not dualistic, right? Not a spirit or a body, which can be separated, but a spirit in a body. And Christ came as a spiritual man and was resurrected in a physical resurrection. And all creation longs for the redemption of the sons of God. Creation itself is being set free, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. And so this idea that we're not just hoping to be whisked away somewhere and let it all burn and we'll never be back, right? But we're, we're waiting for a real physical and spiritual kingdom which God will give to all of his people. What would you do if the world were to end tomorrow? Plant a tree today. In hope uh, that what is here now will grow and flourish into something far better than we can imagine. I saw Dave and then Jay. Implications, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, it matters every time you open your Bible. Right? 
Knowing that you, uh, you train for scripture translation in far-flung places, I'm going to take your word on that. Um, I, I don't know how that goes down, but, it, but I can imagine, right? Uh, one can imagine uh, the way that happens, that uh, you, know, you, you deal with people differently depending on, uh, on what dispensation you may believe they are under, maybe. Uh, Jay? Yeah, so on the issue of assurance, again, I, I'm not sure where we're overlapping our, our doctrine of theology versus our, our doctrine of uh, how we read the scripture. There are, of course, reformed, Calvinistic, dispensationalists, right? There, there are those that believe that God gives assurance of faith, and I'm not sure how that would work out. Um, again, there is, there is also this switch, though, that uh, dispensational at its inception uh, found a home among Calvinistic teachers, now it's almost the opposite, uh, that it's aligned pretty closely with an Arminian theology uh, that, that you actually may lose your salvation. And so that could be part of it, uh, that, that just these, these two uh, areas tend to run in the same circles. And so in many dispensational churches, you'll also find an Arminian theology. And, and you might lack that same assurance that you would find in a Calvinistic soteriology. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it, you know, why does dispensationalism not hold sway in in some of these other reform contexts? Uh, why do we see them sort of naturally aligning covenant theology with Calvinistic theology and dispensational theology with Arminian theology? There's probably something in each system that lends itself to uh, to those. Uh, those outworkings, right? So what we're talking about between covenant theology and dispensationalism is a way of reading scripture, right? Uh, how do we, what do we expect when we read scripture? What is God going to say to us? What is he going to demand of us? What is he going to teach us? Uh, and eventually, when you work this out in, in daily living, it touches everything. It touches every area of your life as a believer. Now, three minutes. On page 210 and following, Robertson begins to deal with uh, Abraham, and he begins to deal with the different approach between uh, the dispensationalist and the covenant theologian. I'll let you go and, and read those later. Um, but here he highlights the, the dispensational emphasis on the physical land of Palestine. Um, Again, here's that idea that, uh, that views mosaic, uh, the Mosaic Covenant as a regression 
Uh, this is where we get that quote from C.I. Schofield that the age of, where is it? It's on page 211 of Robertson. Um, Schofield says that, quote, the dispensation of promise was ended when Israel rashly accepted the law, end quote. And that, quote, at Sinai they exchanged grace for a law. There's this idea of regression. Um, and so he deals with some of these uh, distinctions. The new revised uh, uh, version softens this a little bit. But they're still adding under uh, Abraham this condition. These promises are for you and for your descendants if you remain in the land. Right? And he points out uh, that that is nowhere in the Abrahamic dispensation. In fact, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, by the way, I'm going to take you and your descendants out of this land, and then I'm going to bring them back. Right? This was always God's plan, and yet the dispensationalist says that when, uh, when Jacob took his family down into Egypt, he was doing the wrong thing. Although God showed up and said, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to be with you, it will be well with you, uh, they would say, no, no, there was a condition, and they failed in that condition because they refused to remain in the land. So there is this focus uh, through Abraham. Robertson says that this reveals the dual emphasis consistent throughout dispensationalism. Uh, we can see that quote from Schaefer, uh, page 213. He says, the dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the earth, with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven, with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. So there's this dual nature. Uh, and he points out, uh, his argument here is that it's really not an issue of reading plainly, but our presuppositions of showing up at scripture and saying, I will find uh, the distinction between physical and spiritual. That's essentially what it boils down to, Robertson's argument at least. He's saying that the dispensationalist comes sort of preloaded when they read scripture to see this distinction. Now this is a lesson for all of us <laughs> because we all do this. Might not be this particular thing, but in some ways we come to scripture saying, how can I find what I want to find here, right? And this is a, a, a caution. When you read the word of God, as uh, Rick Lentz is, uh, is fond of saying, know that we do not interpret scripture, scripture interprets us, right? We come to God's word and it lays us bare. We don't come to God's word and say, how can I impose my will on what's happening here? I have a, a friend uh, who says, you know, every Presbyterian has two conversion stories. Uh, they have their conversion story when they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have their conversion story when they believed in the teacher John Calvin, uh, when they came to an understanding of the doctrines of grace. Uh, and one of my friends says that uh, he was having an argument with somebody, and he was talking about, uh, about um, Paul. And this other person was you know, giving Romans 9 and all these, all these texts that we use to demonstrate the sovereignty of God. And he heard it coming out of his mouth. And he said, well, then Paul's wrong and realized, I better go back uh, and let Scripture interpret me rather than me interpret Scripture. So uh, this is what Robertson is saying is wrong. There's a presuppositional problem. It's not an exegetical issue, uh, but the dispensationalist goes uh, and looks for this and finds it, and we are all apt to do that. Uh, so he's insistent. You notice uh, that uh, all along he's been pushing us through the covenant of creation, through all these other things, to see salvation and redemption in a holistic way, to understand this as more broadly than just living in a, in a spiritualized sort of existence where we're waiting to leave and watch it all burn behind us. The problem is, he says, uh, in, in a way of putting it, the dispensationalism puts redemption in a box that's too small to fit. Right? Romans 8, creation waits with eager longing. Robertson says, um, or he points out that Abraham, the recipient of the promise, was counted among those who are looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. We're going to end there. Um, but the main issue, class responses. Yeah, yeah right. You know we wouldn't get there. Uh, the main uh, issue here uh, as we read, and, and maybe you'll go back and read it again, maybe you won't, 
uh, dispensationalists are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We read Scripture differently. And the way we read Scripture touches on everything else that we do in our Christian lives. That's the big takeaway. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would exegete us, uh, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, even as we come uh, to your word in just a little bit and hear from Joel, we pray that your prophet uh, would give us your word rightly and truly and that you, by your Holy Spirit, uh, would make us to receive the implanted word with meekness, to be hearers and doers of your word. Uh, help us to think critically uh, and, uh, and astutely about what we read, uh, but help us, Lord, to submit to you and to your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.